0: and welcome to another episode of At War. Today, we're gonna to have a very interesting debate, which kind of mirrors the debate we've been having generally in the office about international relations versus international law. Um, now, we are lucky to have two non-lawyers who work at the Conflict Law Center and at RSIL, Mubashir and Noor Fatma. And we're gonna be talking to them, Aisha, Malik, Aves, Anwar, who are the international lawyers here. Um, and just to start off this debate, which is more relevant, international law or international relations?
1: Of course, being the gracious, you know, international lawyers here, please, we would love for you to start.
2: I think um, if we look at history, it's it's evident it's international relations. International law just came in two hundred years ago, three hundred years ago. Like I know you guys keep saying, "Oh, it's existed since forever from the yes, earliest of it times." it did. But um, I think international relations.
0: Okay, and in light of what in light of <laughs> everything your. from the
2: first th- throw a stone that was ever thrown I'm, I'm going to borrow something that was said a while back
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> that's our conflict that's yeah. the start of just war your groschen theory of war All okay. the stuff which happened like 300 years ago 300 my thing is, ago. is that international relations is i mean we we've, we've talked about this so much but international relations it When people start talking about it, they get so bogged down in what states' relations are with each other. power structures, all of that kind of stuff. As international lawyers, we're not bothered about that. That's part and parcel of international law. But we use that to give rise to norms that govern those relations. What does that tell us about validity, what's allowed, what rules, norms are created by that? And the thing that really annoys me about international relations is that So I was at this conference. Full of international relations people. I was a sole lawyer there, and they're talking about very complicated theories of international international relations, right? So they're like the Schelling doctrine, you know. You, it says this and this, and we can talk about Russia Ukraine. And then I'm like whispering to the person next to me, "What is the Schelling doctrine?" Like I'm totally out of my depth here. I have no idea. And they're like, "Oh yes, yeah. so basically Schelling said that when you're in a war, both sides want to win," and I'm like are we are you kidding me this is your doctrine and then you look at it you compare that to international law and i'm like this is a proper field okay this requires you know knowledge academia philosophy your (laughs) politics all of that meshed together i could be shelling i could be Sun Tzu, and tell you that you know so so
1: basically in in international relations i mean you pick up any common sense idea and just give it a name yes yeah so exactly. i can say that uh, you know charging my phone at night is <laughs> no way on <reason or> doctrine <laughs> okay uh of international relations oh, wow. because oh, i going to make sure that it's there
0: by the morning right yeah, exactly. so like i want to have i kind of want to win the war so what i'm going to do is have really large forces i should like doctrine of war there we go i think
1: colin Powell went there first, I, though, with the shock and all. <laughs> oh yeah yeah
3: so you're basically critiquing the theories that fall under international they're so,
0: relations. Basic. They're so basic yeah and also you're you guys are just these are, by what they so do? so yeah.
3: these are backed by lots and lots of theoretical, of course, there are theoretical underpinnings, and then there's empirical data. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's something called the Big Mac theory as well, which is basically if there's a McDonald's in another country, then you'll go never go to war yeah. in that country. And now there, this was actually a data-backed theory. And now we see that unfolding and re- literally unraveling in front of our eyes, rather. Yeah. We have Russia that... Um, <laughs>
2: no longer has McDonald's. No longer <laughs> has McDonald's
3: now. <laughs> but that's, uh, it's interesting because even within the field of international relations, we are in such a flux right now with the Russian-Ukraine invasion. Mm. Just this one particular war has thrown decades of... Uh, the, the direction that international relations was taking has just thrown all of that out the window. Now we see this huge reversal happening. And I think our position is more like international law kind of, international relations, sorry, kind of ordains international law. It is the predecessor in that sense that good relations will dictate international law. If there are bad relations, that will also dictate international law. Okay, so that's, that's, the, that's the angle that I kind of come from but would you I, I
2: picked up one thing from both of uh, what both of you said both of you mentioned war so in IR theory we don't just look at war and I think that's one of the misconceptions you have about international relations that it only governs relations when it when it's related to war but there's so much other stuff going on but if if we take a step back to expand on what Noor says so like one of the basic premises we have in IR is the world is anarchic in nature now when we say anarchic in nature it's not like anarchy how you would say it with regards to the political situation, somewhere it's like you don't have an overarching ruling body because all countries are sovereign. Mm-hmm. So, unke relations And that that's where all the theories come. Yeah. So, some people argue that you know you only look after your own national interests. Others argue that you can, um, you can govern these relationships through. Um, uh, through cooperation and cooperating with each other and all of these if you take this back even further you go back to I think the um, the 1500s or the 1600s all of these go back to the the basic concept of how societies mm. how societies function mm-hmm. so in uh, in sub-conversations keep basis and so like in the Hobbesian theory of how they we we refer to Hobbesian theory a lot in IR but Hobbes didn't specifically talk about relations between states. He Mm -hmm. talked about how societies function. Same goes for all the other philosophical thinkers. And then we extrapolate all of that onto the state because the modern nation state system is new. And all uh, all these thinkers are ancient, so but but I think that's an important thing to consider. We're not only talking about war; we're just looking at the relationship with regard with regards to other states. And Usme, there there's so many variables at play. You you look at uh, relationships of trade, you look at relationships yeah. of conflict. Um, so I think that's something international. All of which understand.
0: really signify how important international law is. Because whenever we look at international law, we always look at how it's been flouted. Russia Ukraine mm-hmm. being yeah. prime example, right? But when you look at it in terms of trade and treaties, international law is working for the benefit of so many people every day. And it's working when you have trade trade treaties, transit treaties, the entire European Union is run on treaties, stuff like that. And it has like an actual effect on people's lives. And that is based on the entire structure of international law, which we always then critique when we see it being violated.
1: And actually, and, and I mean, you know, the, the formal standards that are created that are then universally accepted are because are creatures of international law. Right? Yeah. So when we're, when we're talking about war, for example, the standards of, of uh, what is considered a war crime or what is considered wrong, or, or even the fact that, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine, that invasion concept is a creature of, you know, violating Article 2.4 of the UN Charter, yeah. which is a creature of international law. Um, and similarly, we see, you know, any violation, uh, you know, grave uh, breaches of the Geneva conventions are war crimes. Those standards and those, those, th- that yardstick has really been created by mm-hmm. international law. Which, again, I mean, you know, barbs aside and, and all of that aside, mm-hmm. um, is really the formalization of international relations. It's when we get into the formal yeah. domain, yeah. right, beyond the theories, beyond all of that. And, you know, you come to this this common, uh, the least common denominator often. And it's not, you know, a treaty is not often the, the best thing that you could have come up with, but it's something that is acceptable to all. Mm-hmm. Right? That is really the domain that international law operates in. Mm-hmm. Uh, Universal or at least large scale acceptance mm-hmm. and then operation where, you know, the large, largest number of states can operate within that framework. And I think that is what the, the real advantage of international law uh, is, that we have this common platform mm-hmm. in so many different domains mm-hmm. that we can uh, talk about, despite all the competing, you know, international law, uh, international relations uh, elements that come in. But the fact that we have this common platform, I mm-hmm. think that is the, the strength of international that, that has allowed it to survive so long.
0: Yeah, and it's like Louis Henkin said that almost all states obey almost all of international law, almost all, all of the, the time. time yeah. um, and the thing is that when you have states going into, uh, when they do violate international law, what they use, they use language justifying it, which is entirely legal. Mm-hmm. So Russia has come up with an entirely legal justification. It's not said, oh, I don't care about international law, it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. It says, no, what I'm doing is actually conforming to international law because of this, this, this reason. Mm-hmm. When you see, um, Israeli spokespeople on the TV, Zippy Livni, I remember watching her, and she would be entirely defending their bombardment of Gaza on um, IHL terms. She would be talking about proportionality, military necessity, mm-hmm. all of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why um, the Americans went into Iraq with like 3,000 judge advocate generals, right? It's because international law matters, the law matters. They didn't take in ir realists or theorists to be like well what does this tell us about the state of the world right
1: yeah and, and uh, I mean, I think we could I mean,
0: argue that the invasion in iraq happened because of all the
3: hawkish uh, ir people sitting yeah. there
0: right saying exactly. that yeah this is yeah. you
3: know there's a there's an imba- in, imbalance in the balance of power in this region and there's a mm. vacuum and something bad is going to happen so we need to do something about it yeah yeah
2: I think the so earlier I said how I law people look at IR through the prism of war, but I think the same is also true for IR people. We also look at ILO through the prism mm, of war. So right. I always use this example. So, so international lawyers they say you can check all these boxes to go to to conduct a military operation, and IR people think, oh, we need to conduct an operation, so let's forcibly mm. check all these boxes. Mm-hmm. But and I agree with what you said. Like all these uh, trade relations between countries, uh, you know, we, you can just get on a plane and go to New York tomorrow, and that's governed by international yeah. law. I think where the the issue really comes is when states are at conflict and I think that is because outside of conflict and this isn't conflict only in terms of uh, military conflict even if it's a trade war then that is where you see some of the you know uh, international or slightly you know stretching and maybe not holding up to how you'd want to implement it but, uh, but that's the problem when it comes to conflict uh, one country is more powerful than the other and um, there's a, a New York Times columnist. I think he once said about when the negotiation for um, nuclear, the NPT was going on, or some other treaty. And he said, "You know, you can get all the monkeys and all the squirrels and the elephants in one room, and you can tell them all you're equal, uh, you're the same size, but all the elef- but that's not true, and all the elephants know it, and all the squirrels know it as well." Yeah. So, and that's basically the problem. Yeah. But if we take it back, like because you know when I when when we were defending IR, we said, "Oh, it has philosophical underpinnings," but the same is true for law. And what a lot of IR people don't realize is um, this goes when we, when you study I law the first time the first thing that they ask you is always oh, is international law law or not mm. and the reasons people give are oh because some countries break the law yeah. but then some people also break the law right so do you invalidate domestic law because of that so I agree that the law does exist and just like in a domestic setting some domestic players will flout the law and get away with it yeah. the same is also true for the international arena because there's in and um. An unequal distribution of power.
3: Yeah, I agree with that, and I would say that even though we we have all these international rules and regulations, but sometimes we need the stick of the of the international relations element to put international law in force. Mm-hmm. So this goes back to um, the recent. Uh, eu uh, delegation that is in pakistan and in fact is evaluating our gsp plus system mm. and is saying that we need to further abide by some new conventions and treaties in order to retain our gsp plus uh, status, which is them telling us that sign on to these international law-based treaties yeah or otherwise we will you know you will suffer uh yeah. bad trade relations and uh
1: but not uh, just that. I mean, so you know, if, like the, the human rights treaties that they want us to, to sign, or yeah. you know, the the Rome Statute that they want us to sign. Yes, th- that's part of their foreign policy, right? So they're yes. promoting that, that that element there. I think uh, you know, I mean, it's. I think the the, the division that we're creating here yeah. um, mm-hmm. of, of international and, and I, is is a very artificial one. We all mm-hmm. we all know that you know you can't really have a discussion. It goes hand in hand exactly yeah. without yeah. both of both of them. Um, and and in many ways, you know, as we've already discussed. International law is the formalization of international relations. When right. you get into a formal domain where, uh, domain where you are, uh, you know, speaking to each other, states are, are communicating, that's the language you want to use. Right. And, and in that sense, uh, again, going back to the point that the, the, the language, the standards, the, um, you know, the environment or the ecosystem that you create, the tools you use for that architecture mm-hmm. are, are international law rules. I yeah, think. yeah. And, and what, what international relations does is help explain why those rules are what they are. Right, like why do we have a Rome Statute? Um, why do we have uh, you know uh, you know a, a particular convention the way it is? For example, the the, the law of the sea, for example. Um, why is it because there are nations that uh, have have prioritized naval warfare over or naval uh, you know uh, how should we say it continuity or stability? over other priorities, right? And that is then, you know, explained by the by the international relations domain far better than it can be yeah. so, international so, law domain.
3: So, so your understanding is that international relations is basically used to explain the developments in international law because international law supposedly came first? <laughs> That's a chicken
1: and the egg. And, and, and I feel like we are, sp- are in a chicken and the egg. Despite me saying that, it still does not change my opinion that you know, international relations is ultimately the art of the obvious, right? Yeah, yeah we know yeah. Russia has attacked another country. Why did did that? We don't know, but we have to deal with these repercussions. We know right. people are suffering and stuff like that. But
2: what you just I've said. I've lost why, a lot of friends today. Why <laughs> I've lost a lot Why did Russia attack <laughs> right. Ukraine? You can probably explain that better when you look at IRP. So when you look at a newspaper and you say, Oh, look at NATO, they've encircled Russia. Yeah. You, mm-hmm. you look at it from yeah, a news definitely. piece perspective. But mm-hmm. when we look at it, we're like, Oh, okay, you know, some at some level, this is what a certain IR theory about, mm. says about that. Yeah. Um, but I
0: also think that international relations actually its incorporation into international law makes it the weakest. Because so the argument that IR theorists come to IL with is that to make every state juridically equal doesn't make any sense because you're not acknowledging that they're so different. So to give every uh, country a nation state, so say like Vanuatu has the same voting power on the General Assembly, as the U.S. doesn't make any sense because we know that they're so unequal and one is so much more powerful than the other. And
1: that's why you have a Security Council. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. But then, in the Security Council, there was the game theorists, right? The IR game theorists who were involved there. And in at the time of the UN Charter, you had like 50 states. You did not have decolonization. It was way back when when you only had when you had people coming out of the Second World War, and they were like, "How do we prevent another World War happening?" Yeah. And the game theorists came in and said, "If you give them all veto power, they won't attack each other, mm-hmm. and it will kind of k- keep that power in check." Mm-hmm. And since then, I don't think there is an international lawyer worth his salt unless they work for like you know like unless it's probably Dinstein or something who would not be like we need to reform the veto system Mm -hmm. the world has changed so much since Mm -hmm. 1945 you have like 200 countries now and they are all trying to claim power and at the same time the multipolarization of the world it is now going through a change and maybe we will see that happening Mm -hmm. but it's actually the worst thing i think in international law the thing that protects the powerful is the veto system and yeah. for that we
2: have to thank because that's what, no no that's relations. what I was going to say if you look at the the makeup of the security council and why some countries were given a veto power that is international relations. Yeah. yeah right you they their insecurity with with regu- with respect to each other that's why you have that structure in place mm-hmm. and if you look at so the evolution of the international society as we have it now over the past 300 years so 2, two 300 years ago they were no nation states they were only empires yeah. and then you started codifying all of it but All, even the codification of law and international law as we know, as it exists today, it happened because of international relations. I'm not saying that that makes international law inferior, which it might be, but but the point is that it is dictating all of that. It it is creating Mm. the overarching structure within which international law operates. Now, that doesn't make international law irrelevant. It's just like there comes a point when, um, especially when more powerful states are involved, it kind of breaks down, Mm. so to say um and um, most of the developments in i law are post second world war and then you realize oh we could, and if you look at how the un was formed mm-hmm. that's the main uh, legal body that we have today that was to prevent another war why do yeah. wars happen i theorists will tell you that <laughs>
3: and, and just to kind of add on to that um the entire how the un came about after the second world war that would be what many people would call the enforcement of the victor's peace, right? Mm. And that reflected yeah. the IR, IR status and the balance of powers at that point in time. And that's why international lawyers today argue why the veto power is so outdated is because it's reflecting the balance of power as it was yep. back in 1945. Yep. Yeah, And on that front, that is entirely true. Mm. My question is... Um, It kind of explains what I was trying to get at, that Mm -hmm. you have all these states, you had empires before, you have going way back to, say, Thucydides, saying things like, you know, the strong do what they have to and the weak suffer what they must. Yeah, yeah. And when you translate that into nation states, we see that rules and regulations are formed to maybe enhance the power of the stronger states and maybe keep the weak states where they are. And we see that when it comes to trade relations, we see that when it comes to uh, negotiations after say a war. Mm. We see that even within like internal, internal and civil conflicts and internal within the state conflicts as well. So it is more so, it just kind of makes law subservient
0: to the forces of IR. Mm. Or at least that's how I kind but of my issue is that, in my so book. then what IR does is it tells us why wars happen. And what IL seeks to do is try to prevent that from happening again. So it's kind of like tries to act as a restraint on yeah, that power. What, mm-hmm.
1: what I think it is, it's it's an evolution of IR. So IR has been there. It's 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 been there for for as many years as you guys will will claim it. It's been, <laughs> yeah. um, but, but but ultimately it's evolved into something which is international law, right? So so nothing. I mean, you, you, the the statement that you made, uh, you know, the weak must suffer. What they must, mm. um, nothing can prevent that, yeah. other than perhaps you know international, your law. international law right yeah. now, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's the first time in history, you know, the UN Charter that you've had a mechanism like this where it's it puts some restraint, right? right. There, there is no complete, but it is a restraint that is not imposed through mm-hmm. a force. It is a restraint that is there because a norm has been created that has been accepted, right. and that is the power that that international law really has, right? It's the evolution of these same, you know, international relations theories that have been in vogue at times and at at particular junctures of time, which have been, you know, very special, um, they've solidified, crystallized, and and allowed, uh, you know, human society then evolve in that particular uh, domain. And this goes through, I mean, you can see this same pattern of, Mm. you know, Article 2.4, but you can see this in every domain of international law that we recognize right now. That's Um, uh, And and it's been the same. How have international relations evolved? Mm -hmm. They've ultimately evolved by by this mechanism of, of international law developing.
3: I also feel like international law and the So we're just the most sophisticated version of this. No, No, but but you're here because of us. (laughs) All right, grandma. I was going to say there's also another interesting development that we've seen since the past, I think, two or three decades more so is the regionalization of international law. And at the same time, not international relations as we think of it, but regional power politics. Mm. And I mean that in the sense, in a more constructive sense. So we have smaller organizations such as ECOWAS, which are dictated by regional powers in the West Africa region, who are coming up with rules and regulations to protect the trade interests as well as the security interests of that regional. Mm. And this is... Not in contrary to what is happening at the UN level, it is, I would say, rather complementary and supplementary to that. But at a regional level, it is more accessible and it kind of evades the question of like having no power at the very, very top because of the Security Council and the way it has been structured. So I think that's a, that's an interesting yeah. an interesting point to bring up as well. And when I
0: see that play out, I think yeah. that it gives so much leverage to the global south as well. Because totally, if you look totally. at NATO going into Kosovo and then they argue that, oh, we have a new norm now crystallizing, which is that of humanitarian intervention. Yeah. Then you had the group of 77 countries, mainly from the global south, including India, including Pakistan. Yeah who at the same time was recognizing Kosovo, mm-hmm. um, said also that we do not recognize that there is a customary right to humanitarian intervention. And that kind of stopped it right then and there because yes. you had 77 countries come out. Do you,
2: do you think one of statement. these countries can stop humanitarian intervention if one of the weaker... is No, they're not
0: strong enough to do that, but they're strong enough to say this has not crystallized as a norm so you have broken into... So that, which, which, which is important in an of It country. is, it is. Yeah. But
2: my point is at the, at the you know... So what prevents the U.S. from invading North Korea? is It's not international norms. They, uh, <clears throat> the, EU, in the North Korea, for all intents and purposes, is outside of the, what everyone considers the norms to be. Right. It's like, because someone in North Korea says, you come near us, we'll, we'll yeah. have a nuclear missile. Come mm-hmm. to words. And Trump
0: and Kim really started to get on.
2: <laughs> no, they, no, they did. But the point is, uh, because normally we look at this relationship through the perspective of oh, how a, a strong country yeah. is, you know, uh, overpowering a weak country, which is why international law fails. But if you want to see an example of how sometimes international relation theory might be, it, it's it's actually saving a weaker country from a much much stronger country. Look at India and Pakistan, because if you look if you look at our statements recently, it's. You know, I, I I don't think I can translate it well, so. So you know how you say it in Urdu, hum to marenge, aapko bhi saath leke yeah. and then no one wants to die with you. So and because if if the norms aren't saving us, is, is that the
1: translation of mutually assured destruction? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But
0: at the same time, no, IR theorists actually thought that Russia was going to, Putin was going to go in. I was reading all of these uh, articles by Anatole Ivan, being like, you know, oh, they're going it's such an overblown statement. I yeah,
1: even the Ukrainians are saying there's going yeah, to be more bad like, like
0: come on, calm down. And yet he did then go in. You know, so and
1: how the international lawyers looked at this. We didn't even get into this debate it we will with that. But there's <laughs> no <into laughs> predictions.
2: But there's also another thing in this. Uh, you said n- none of the IR theorists were talking about it because even in IR theory. So the thing with IR is we have a lot of different schools. You have people who who I was just going
3: to say people were talking about yeah. it.
2: Yeah, and they were saying this is going to happen. Like people mm-hmm. like Mir mm-hmm. who people like Walt who belong to the realist Rila school Rila's. of thought. They've been saying this for the past twenty years. Yeah. You are pushing the world towards this. But every Ever since like China, China and right now is very strong compared to where they were 20 years ago. Yeah. But even when they were not strong, since th- the early 2000s, Mearsheimer has been saying there will be a conflict with China and the US will cause it. And his argument is the US never likes a peer competitor. Mm-hmm. Every time, because the US is a regional hegemon and every time there's another regional hegemon popping up, they just yeah. put an end yeah. to yeah. it. It's and a we
3: global can see hegemon that. rather. Yeah, global. No, so
2: yeah. he argues there is no country strong mm-hmm. enough to be a global hegemon because one, the world is too big and the second, there's too much water. Uh, that, that's how he phrases it okay. so but but even then so and he cites the example of so like the US has done it three times in the past they've done it with Nazi Germany, Imperial Germany, the Soviet Union and now they're doing it with China anytime, so anytime any country begins uh, starts to become too strong to have the he, what he calls the freedom to roam so like mm-hmm. you can move around in other countries neighborhood the US is like oh no no you're getting too strong let's mm-hmm. put an end to this but coming back to what I said was um, it's in some cases, when you look at the weak countries and um, usme that's their their deterrent power is what's saving them. But moving beyond this, I want to ask you guys this um, as international lawyers, when you see the strong countries flout international law, and now a lot of the weaker countries, the smaller countries, are saying, like, you know, what's the point in following this? And recently, uh, last, uh, last year, there was an article by an IR theorist, and he said, uh, China is actually giving an alternate model to the world because the, the West is, imposes what they call a norms-based order. Yeah. Any funding that you get from the IMF or the World Bank, that's that's it's backed by reforms. Yeah. Uh, China is not doing that. So now what he argued was that China's development model is more favorable for authoritarian regimes and dictatorial regimes. And with that goes the, the norms thing out of the bucket. Yeah. You're like, okay, no, no need for any... Uh, ratifying any treaties for the GSP Plus, we have China. Yeah. So, what what do you think the future of ILAW looks like, especially from ah from the perspective of a weaker power?
0: Well, I think that it's really interesting because we're seeing um, a China, Russia and a global bloc happening. So they've been releasing like joint statements on international law, joint declarations. If you read Putin's speech before he invaded Ukraine, it was all just very critical of the West being like, this is not your rules-based international order that you guys are creating at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And China at the same time is very quiet. Apart from on the South China Sea, you will very rarely see many Chinese positions on international law. It kind of stays quiet, does its own thing. Yeah. Um, and then we see them emerge quite quite late. Um, but at the same time, when I look at it in terms of leverage and the global south, there's definitely a need to increase capacity here because we've been talking about this so much that there's not enough capacity in, in international law. Mm-hmm. But how can the global south leverage their capacity? It's all through state practice. It's through having statements, it's through having declarations, it's through giving your opinion on every issue of international law and also watching what is more favorable to you. The US refuses to take positions on so many aspects of the law of armed conflict, international law generally, international criminal law, Mm -hmm. and it does that on purpose because it has all of these lawyers working together to be like, this is what we believe and this is what is most advantageous to us. The global south suffers and weaker countries suffer from that because they don't actually have these positions. And so at the same time, these norms like unable and unwilling, which kind of allows you to go in if there's a non-state actor mm-hmm. acting on your territory and take them out if they attack if they attack that country. That is a uh, doctrine the rise of which should give everyone in the global south huge huge cause for concern own up until now only the latin american states have come out and say said we do not like this doctrine this is not applicable and we don't like it for these these reasons doesn't comply with international law the more we see of that kind of thing i think the better for western states for weaker states so so
3: countries coming together and weaker countries or the global south coming together and issuing declarations yeah such as that That would be interesting, but at the same time, wouldn't you say it weakens the case of international law? If it's something so good in and of itself, it should be something that all the countries of the world should be rushing to, say, sign on to all the treaties and ratify all the treaties. But at the same time, we have stronger countries yet again telling uh, weaker countries, sign this. Otherwise, we'll take your trade rights away.
0: What we've seen in the last decade Mm -hmm. is the lowest treaty ratification that you've seen in the UN for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And actually what's happening is a a recession from multilateralism in that state, so refusing to accede to treaties. If I was to advise Pakistan, I would say do not accede to any treaty, especially not the Rome Statute, the International Criminal Court, because I think, and when I look at GSP+, I find it completely neo-imperialist. I feel feel like it is really using the stick approach to be like, you will do this, 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 this. And a lot of people who are in the pro-human rights camp.
1: I think it's abuse of a privilege uh, position of privilege. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's yeah. what the West is is essentially. The Europeans are essentially doing. Because
3: we see that with, for example, our FATF uh, experience yeah. as well, where we yeah. have compliance that is in certain aspects better than the United States of America. Yeah, and yet we're slapped on with more action plans or more uh, requirements and more inspections and stuff like that, and it's just a question of. Uh, the Global South not being effectively co-opted into international legal processes. Especially human
0: rights stuff, right? Because my real frustration with human rights Mm -hmm. stuff comes down to the norms and the lack of like any kind of cultural nuance, the relativism in Mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. So when you look at it in terms of, oh, okay, there should be a right to not harm children, to not mutilate children. You would think across the board, everyone would agree with that. There can be no discussion on this, of course. Mm What about when you see westerners arguing that that should include circumcision so something that religious I'm sorry but you cannot have blanket statements so, I and mean, at the gone. same
1: time in the west you now have you know kids being given uh, puberty blocking liquids, yeah, right yeah. and and uh, so so you know kids who who are coming out as trans and at a at a younger age you know arguments are being made that they should be allowed to, to go through that yeah. like, is that not does that come within that same mm-hmm. uh, you know definition of, of is this harm But no, in that debate, it's completely different. In fact, that is the the, the left's argument there. Mm -hmm. And over here, it is something that is uh, a completely different thing. So the way we frame it is also a big thing. And it's always been framed in a Western European, European European-centric way, which is something that we can't... uh, I mean, the, the, the entire thing comes about, uh, again, is is how well you play the game, right? And again, it's that capacity issue that you've raised. Uh, this issue of, of lawfare, where now legal mechanisms are being used to abuse states or, or, or used against states. That is, you know, uh, international relations in practice through international law.
3: Yeah, pretty right? much, yes. Where
1: Where they're looking at their interests and they're using international legal mechanisms to do that. So that space is certainly there. You know, international law is just a tool then, in, in that sense. Um, and it's just not, you know, this this mechanistic uh, f- uh, formula uh, for, for equality that, that you know, you, you would hope that, that exists there. Um, yeah, so that's, that's one thing that I wanted to mention there. But the debate on whether China, you know, provides a, a better alternative to this thing, I don't think so. I don't think we're going, we're, or anytime soon, we're going to get to that. Because China isn't shaping how the actual law itself is evolving. It is shaping how states respond to, um, you know, that carrot and stick approach that the West usually has, yeah. right? Yeah. So now they have alternatives, which they didn't have, yeah. right? And that is now making them their offers less attractive. So there's 400 billion that, you know, every second year the, the uh, G7 countries say we've established a fund and we're going to rival uh, the Belt and Road Initiative which never materializes, yeah. but say it does materialize. Mm-hmm. We now, I mean, states have a choice mm-hmm. and states have never been reflections of Western democratic values as the West would like to portray, yeah. right? States have had different uh, means of, of governance, different uh, governance systems. Um, and if those are something that are nurtured by you know a Chinese relationship, I think that's, that's what the way the world is going to go.
3: So I'm going to briefly... Uh talk about another point that was raised, which I think is a weakness of the IR camp here, Um, when it comes to the efficacy of international theories, for example, the rise of China, as we were discussing earlier, was sort of predicted. But international relations and IR theory in particular is as good as its predictability. If it starts, if it leads to a point where all the results in a world that is still non not going according to the predictions then that tells you that you have uh, a very useless ir theory mm. that's why the big mac theory that i was uh, telling yeah. you about uh, and that came about in the 70s i believe and underpinned a lot of new liberal policies underpinned a lot of uh, the notion to the notion of uh, promoting trade and cooperation and uh, moving away from a realist school of thought into a more new liberal school of thought mm. but we see that go out the window and uh, we see that trade and economics is not what is uh, going to hold countries together. And having a McDonald's in every country doesn't mean that there's never no. going to be war. So that is a failing of IR theory. Mm. That is a failing of uh, these theories not being great tools at predicting. But at the same time, we see international law is also not that great at predicting what is going to happen. I, I, and it's not designed, yeah, or of restraining. Yeah. It's not designed to do that. As
2: well. Mm. So So I think you're you're right. It's because so if you look at the US China conflict, realists would say that we've been predicting this would happen. Mm. People who follow the economic Mm. interdependence theory, they would say, oh, they would never go to a conflict because they're so interlinked Mm. economically. Mm but whenever the conflict happened or doesn't happen the other side will say oh our theory was right yeah. and you're right it's not very great at predicting things but it, it is it can be seen as a tool of explaining things that have happened exactly. uh, and then you use the past to make a prediction about the future an educated prediction if you want to yeah.
1: call and, it and that and with the Ukraine situation we're now seeing and, and the good thing about you know international relations is its adaptability and its ability to, to uh, extrapolate from one situation for, for another situation mm-hmm. so we're now looking at the Taiwan situation yeah. right? Mm-hmm. which is you know China's Ukraine, yes. right? yeah. and 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 more potentially that could be, mm. uh, and and all the, the, the arguments that you're seeing on that are very interesting arguments that are developing and, and how this now gives a green light to China to operate, how is the U.S. going to react uh, accordingly, right. is it going to react, is is the Biden administration too weak to respond to Chinese, you know, and, and the Chinese are, you know, uh, testing the waters as well in this regard. So it's it's really interesting, and this can only be done, you know, in an international relations uh, discussion yeah. international law has very little to say in this you you will um, talk about it once it is up can I, can yeah, I just quickly because,
0: uh, just, just quickly about that point mm-hmm. that China is really careful about what it's saying about Russia's legal justification mm-hmm. because Russia arguing that oh these two uh, Donetsk and lohan qu- republics have seceded and we have acknowledged that their right to self-determination allows them to secede and then we're acting in collective self-defense China has been really careful because it doesn't want that applied to Taiwan yeah. so it's been kind of like you know saying I'm not going to say anything about russia but i'm also, i can't go that that far because yes. like what what does that mean for Tibet? what does that mean
2: for taiwan i i just want to add something to what you said earlier about you know the third world approaches um mm-hmm. so if you look at how the society has evolved uh, most of international law was codified post second world war but by that time a lot of the global south as it, as it exists now they were colonies of the west mm-hmm. so there was no capacity yeah. And all these new countries were automatically part of treaties, or they were. It was just a mere formality. Even now, when you compare the judicial capacity or the legal capacity of all the countries in the West, uh, it's and with the Global South, there there is no comparison. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, what you guys said that you know, it's in their arms, I law has become a foreign policy tool. You know, and the way they use it. You know, I always say uh, with them, it's always a game of semantics. You know, the West always say, oh, this country has liberal democracy. Mm-hmm. Who decides what a liberal democracy? Who yeah. decides what a democracy is and what is liberal? And now what combination is a liberal
1: democracy? And
0: who decides that is so great. Yeah. I mean, yours gave you Trump and fascism. So. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah.
1: children in cages.
0: Yeah.
1: How bad does it get? Yeah. You know, uh, but, but the other thing
2: I would also say is like Aisha, you mentioned earlier, China is very careful about what they say. And that's true. But I think, The amount of we, we don't really get to see a lot of the Chinese narrative. Mm-hmm. So I just found out two days ago Blinken had a statement a while back mm-hmm. and China didn't say anything for a couple of weeks. Then they released a 25,000 word statement oh, wow. on it. We never get to hear about this mm-hmm. because our discourse is so dominated by the yes. Western news outlet. Yeah. So we're like, oh, okay, the US said something. China is like just meekly well, gone back in a corner and they just, they just shut up. But they don't. They are slowly establishing their their positions. I Back in 2015, uh, 2015 their white paper, they specifically outlined that we want to become a major player yeah. uh, in maintaining global peace so things like that they have been putting them out there and the people in the u.s and the west they do study them yeah. but because our discourse doesn't really pick up on chinese resources we
1: uh and, and i think that that also is is um you know explains the different approaches to international relations that states mm-hmm. have so you have the west which has this loud flashy yeah. way of, of you know uh, some signaling or messaging its its, yeah. its intent and or whatever, and then you have China, which you know you haven't even heard of some of the things, but the people who need to hear have heard, yeah. right? Uh, China sent that message across. Um, so so this is another way uh, where, uh, and this could manifest in in international law development as well, right? Yeah. Where where you have these silent approaches which are. Uh, developed instead of having these large multilateral treaties, you have these regional things that are evolving, like mm-hmm. with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, or or where, where new norms of international law mm-hmm. are evolving and developing uh, w- regionally, as opposed to having it at the global level all at once.
3: I would say that just as we're arguing that maybe international law has been kind of captured by Western interests, we can argue the same for international relations yes, yeah. as well, sure. because our, all IR theory we study is. Coming from very very specific scholars based in say the U.S. Mm-hmm. or Great Britain exactly. or in Europe, and mm-hmm. we're studying those perspectives. I remember back in university, um, a Chinese uh, expert um, in one of my really introductory Paul one hundred and one classes mentioned that you know we always uh, we always discuss China and the rise of China, and we try to deconstruct that through the lens of the west and the theories that the west have come out and again western liberal democracy you're there for four or five years you do what you can and then you're thinking about your next term But then this expert mentioned that Chinese authorities never believe in such short timeframes. So Chinese Mm. foreign policy evolves. They look at the next 100 years. They look at the next 50 years. And that's why we see China being so quiet because our frame, our lens, we're just so hyper-focused on the next year, the next four years, the next term, maybe at best the next 10 years. Because it's so focused
0: on democratic elections. Exactly. Exactly. But also
2: also if you look at the, the social and political makeup of societies, mm-hmm. um, so there was this uh, research that I was doing on how if there is a conflict in the South China Sea, there will be human security implications, and how the West and the East would re- would react. Mm-hmm. And generally, in the West, there is more you, there is more of a focus on the individual. So then mm-hmm. you'll be like, oh, human security is being mm-hmm. violated. But if you look at the Eastern cultures, we value the collective more than the yeah. individual. Yeah. So we, yeah. and even if you look at countries like Pakistan, we'll be like, okay, we are willing to sacrifice some of our individual liberties for the larger, commi- mm-hmm. uh, the larger. Good. But going back to what you said about how the, the US is all flashy, I remember this guy I saw in New York, I think I told you two days back. So this guy was wearing a shirt which says winner of two consecutive world wars. It's like the most one of the most obnoxious <laughs> oh things God. I've seen. <laughs> <laughs> but but, but if, we can, if we can bring it to a close, moving forward, uh, what do you think um, what should be the way for Pakistan with regards to, you know, reconciling IR theory? Because I think one of our biggest weaknesses is we completely ignore ILO. Mm-hmm. so and how how do, how do we move percent. forward because in we don't set the rules yeah. the rules are already there and we have to play what you said I think a while back like playing who plays the game best so as international lawyers what would you say is the roadmap for Pakistan? I think
0: really international law only comes to the fore in everyone's brain when you have something like Yadav happening yes. so it's yeah. like are we going to get dragged in front of an international court how can we prevent that from happening um, and that's the only most thing about international law
1: yeah but but the fact that we don't think about it more uh, is what leads us into those fateful situations, yeah, right? yeah, where you're yeah. greylisted and you say, "Oh, we're greylisted now." Mm-hmm. No, this is the third time you've been greylisted. Yeah. You could have seen this a mile, yeah, uh, a mile away. Yeah, a mile away. Yeah. Um, so, so the, I mean, for Pakistan right now, and and this has been something that we've been, we don't have enough IR capacity in Pakistan, let alone mm-hmm. IL, uh, international law capacity. Um, develop both your capacities. Yeah. I just feel that, you know, there is a bigger ecosystem for IR to flourish in Pakistan, both in academia as well as, you know, in think tanks, in, in you have the foreign office um, uh, as, as as someone, and and you have a place for, you know, IRB, right? There's yeah. a career trajectory. For international law, you don't. Other than, you know, uh, academia and RSIL, <laughs> we have very few job opportunities there, yeah. right? And, and, and even in academia, you have, international law is, is one of the, subjects on the side that is taught as part of the LLB program, right? It's not a core uh, uh, thing. You don't have enough specialization. You certainly don't have the research that is needed to, to develop this. Because international law, as we've repeatedly said uh, from our platform at RSL, mm-hmm. it, it flourishes in in the academy. Right. It flourishes in universities. That's where the, the arguments develop. That's where, you know, really your sources and your foundation is developed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that then has to feed directly into industry uh, or, or directly into, uh, you know, your, your foreign office or your international law practitioners. Um, mm-hmm. and, and we don't have any of that. right? We have very little international capacity at, uh, in, in universities. Mm-hmm. And then there are almost virtually no job opportunities for these individuals So unless we start developing that and we make an ecosystem for international law, you're going to have that. And if you're heavy on just one side, you are going to get those shocks, like the fat of shock, like mm-hmm. the Bulbush and other thing. Oh, right? We didn't know how to you know, fully uh, deal with that situation mm-hmm. and a number of others, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you just don't have the homegrown talent to be able to tackle these, right? Yeah. Now we have, you know, at the attorney general's office, we have, you know, the international dispute and settlement thing. That is one avenue which is developing that expertise, mm-hmm. which is great. But you need a lot more there. You need your foreign office not to have just two or three people um, focused on international law as well as you know all the domestic law issues and service matters that the front office deal with, deals with
2: i think also um, even if you were to look at things through very hardcore ir lens so then what do ir people say international law is a tool of foreign policy Right. Okay. Let's stick with that view. Then use international law. I think that's our biggest problem. Even yeah. if you were to take, if you were to take, because the argument was never that I law has no utility. Like even if we go back to our or, or original point, you realize now where you live live in a world where international law has utility. Then develop that utility. If you want to, like you said, we should have seen fire of fire of thing coming. We we worked on something last year at RSI, and they, there's no statement from the foreign office we you have to go through like dozens of websites and there's nothing to be found yeah. people are issuing legal statements about pakistan's matters and then when um you know we're we're drowning neck deep that's when we realize oh yeah. we need to get a legal position so let's hire someone on an ad hoc basis and by then it's like we we've had no say in the development of the discourse i remember aisha you told me one thing once that even though the us is not party to so many treaties they make sure they're part of the negotiation of their treaties mm-hmm. so they shape the customary law like with, with the law sea uh with the, the own statute. statute so they, they they're still participating so we're not saying that pakistan should go and accede to mm-hmm. all treaties but still
0: yeah play they're an they're active schools. role yeah.
2: Yeah. so you have a stance that has been there for like five ten fifteen years so then you can make a claim if, if
3: Within Pakistan, I would argue, there's also, we don't have a lot of uh, sophisticated depth when it comes to uh, understanding IR. Yeah. We mimic what we have been taught by the West. Yeah. We do not come with our own alternative approaches or third world approaches to conflicts, And we don't come up with our own lens or our own theories to study uh, international law and the world as it as it is. Unless we also start moving in that direction, mm. international law might just be the best hope that we have so far. Like yeah. Just clinging on to what the rules are in place right now, understanding those rules and trying to play the game, as was said before. So she just said international is the best. Yeah, I, was, I was just wondering whose side
1: was she on? And another thing with, with Pakistan, I think something that is part of our you know foreign policy mentality is that you know, we can hide behind our sovereignty yeah. right that but sovereignty ain't what it used to be mm. right it's it's you just have this <laughs> used to be into, should... <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, the, this eu gsp plus uh, segment they are you know forcing you for to us. voluntarily dilute your sovereignty mm. there right mm. and and you will do it because you need those those trade concessions for your economy and i think that is uh that's something that we need to really understand that you know, we we need to engage very smartly with not only international uh, relations uh, uh, issues that, that, that come about, but especially with, with how international law is developing. Because yes. if we're not doing that, we're missing out and the world is going to you know negotiate these treaties or negotiate these norms without us being yeah. part of the debate. Yeah. And, that's really-
3: and the Global South can bring that accountability aspect if not just Pakistan, but other countries in the Global South start participating more in the current processes that we have.
0: Mm.
3: They can bring these... Countries, these bigger countries, to the table and can hold them accountable or make their voices heard. That would be again to play the international law card. Uh, that would be the equalizing aspect that we were discussing.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, I think we had a, we're all
3: on the a, same that, team here, and yeah. <laughs> we should be said.
1: No, I think we had a great debate. It was, it was actually yeah. a, a, a very fun discussion. So, absolutely. Still the art of the (laughs) obvious.
0: So, we hope you really enjoyed this discussion as much as we did at home. uh, And please tune in for future episodes. Thank you.